Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. The virus has torn through safety nets and shattered lives. It's revealed deep cracks within our healthcare system and exacerbated them, leaving the most vulnerable among us without protection. Especially now, since the lockdown, everything's locked down, and it makes it a lot harder because they don't have nowhere to go during the day. It's really hard on the street people. How come there's no help for any of us? Why? Why isn't there any help? I believe that the entire mental health system in this country is not working. It's broken. And if it's broken for the average person that that has health insurance and has a family and has a roof over their head, if it's broken for them, and I think it is, then it's doubly broken for people who are experiencing homelessness. And we'll hear why people are concerned that West Virginia's vaccine rollout could make folks in its poorest communities less likely to get the shot. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're taking a look at some of the inequities the pandemic has exposed, beginning with how COVID-19 is affecting people without stable homes. The Harmony House in Huntington, West Virginia, functions as a day shelter, but it also has an outreach team to make contact with and offer support to other homeless people who are still on the streets. Kyle Vass, a reporter with the Us and Them podcast, recently spent a day with Harmony's outreach team visiting sites where homeless people are most likely to stay this winter. You got good shoes. That's good. That's real good. You came prepared. Every day comes with a new set of challenges for Dominic Miller. The 20-year-old outreach worker sports a psychedelic bandana that hardly covers his long brown curls. He brings a lot of energy everywhere he goes, and he goes everywhere. The question for you. Are you comfortable entering abandoned houses? Oh, for sure. All right, making sure before we do. Dominic, or Dom, started his job as a youth outreach specialist about six months ago. He keeps tabs on younger people, people ages 16 to 25 living on the streets. He says people that age are less likely to end up sleeping outside because they haven't burned all their bridges yet. They can crash at a friend's house or with a relative. But Dom says their housing situation is rocky at best. When they do end up staying outside, that's where he comes in. So we've got some snacks with us. We've got some uh, uh, camping supplies and uh, a couple of things to keep warm with us that we'll be handing out today. His car is packed with stuff, but Dom says the most important thing he remembers to bring is respect. Respect for other people's space and privacy. And uh, one, one thing that I've always... I, I'm real big about is before I even before I even get like right up on their camp, I ask permission from them. Um, I, I tell them I start off by telling them who I am and who I work for and what I'm doing there. Like either if I'm bringing them stuff or uh, I'm just there to check on them, whatever it is, I I let them know that ahead of time. And then after that, I ask them. I'm like, all right, can, you know, is it all right if I walk up? You know, do I have permission to walk up to the camp? And I've never been told no. So they're, they're very welcoming, man. A lot of times they're, they're wanting somebody to be able to talk to, wanting somebody to listen to them and you know, just kind of have casual conversations. So it's been, it's been a great experience so far. We walk along a riverbank just outside a metal refinery in Huntington. We come across what looks like a campsite, but no one's there. Um, so this is a pretty common spot to find one of my, one of our uh, peeps. So I'm just going to leave some, some food items here and leave my business cards so they know, that he knows it was me that stopped by. And so, so he knows that it's somebody he knows at least coming down here and not somebody going through his stuff. And do, do, you, do you all make contact like once a week or about how often do you see this person? Um... I don't know what all information I'm able to yeah, like, yeah, share. No, so, um, they, they just relocated back down here. They were in a in a temporary shelter. So and, that, and that's um, a, like a, a thing. I'm trying to remake contact now. Dom goes out of his way to avoid sharing details about the location of tent encampments. He says the stigma around homelessness can get violent. 
Recently, someone set a tent on fire here while a person was sleeping in it. They've made it out okay, but Dom is cautious about what he says. Despite not having a degree in social work, Dom says he's gotten the hang of the job pretty quickly because when other people his age were finishing up high school, Dom was learning firsthand what it's like to not have a home. One of the big reasons I do this is because I myself was homeless four years ago. Um, and about two and a half years ago again. But uh, So I, I, I've been there too, you know. Um, I, I myself wasn't, wasn't sleeping on the streets or wasn't you know, staying in the campsite. I was, I was couch hopping at the time. But, and then I found a nice program that actually housed teenagers that were experiencing that sort of thing. So... To be a part of a team that helps, you know, with that age range and help give back, it's, it's awesome. Because you know, that's what I needed at one time, and it, it saved me. <laughs> so, it's nice to, nice to be a part of it. We continue along the riverbank when John Hensley, another outreach worker who's with us, gets a call. John, how did you, how did you get involved in, in this? Oh, I can wait. Sorry. <laughs> Crisis call. <laughs> oh, fun. Gotta love those. All right, and this is about... Hello. There's been an emergency at Harmony House, and they need John and Dom to come help. I'll let the boys know. They avoid offering details right. that would violate anyone's privacy, but we head back. When we get there, I wait in a staff room while John handles the situation. Dom takes the opportunity to offer a training session for Harmony House staff on how to administer naloxone. It's a drug that can reverse opioid overdose. One of the brand names is Narcan. Hey, neighbor. Howdy, y'all. Who wants to get trained on Narcan? All right. So I'm going to hand everybody one of these lovely papers. If y'all want to go ahead and start filling that out for me. Miss Martha, are you already trained? Yes. Are you? Nice. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Association reports that about a third of people experiencing homelessness also have a substance addiction. So this training is essential. Uh, the difference between an overdose and somebody being intoxicated, can you all tell me what that is? I don't know how to explain it, but I know the same. Yeah, um, so one breath every 10 seconds. Um, if they're not getting more than one breath every 10 seconds, they're not getting enough air. And most likely that breath that they are getting, if they are getting, if they are overdosing and are getting a breath every 10 seconds, that one breath is most likely blocked. It's congested, you can hear it. That gurgling sound you were talking about, that's, that's what you hear. It's, it's a distinct noise, <laughs> very distinct noise. Um, turning blue, gray, so lips and fingertips is what they say. If they're already blue lips and blue fingertips, they are already not breathing. So. Hit them with Narcan. When Dom finishes the training and John handles the client situation, we head back out. This time to an abandoned warehouse on the outskirts of Huntington. Hey, it's Dominic with the center. I'm here. We've got some uh, some warm clothes, some couple snacks if you're hungry. Also got water. Yeah, let's stay hydrated. We venture deeper and deeper into the warehouse, and Dom makes his way over to some questionable-looking floorboards. All right, so this is really sketchy. I would yeah, not Dom, suggest y'all walking on it. I don't like you. Uh, okay. You oh, I've learned the path. I've learned the studs. Hey, it's Dominic with the center. Anybody back here? Hello? For about 30 minutes, we search the building. There are signs all around that people have been staying here. Clothes, trash, bedding. But an important detail stands out to Dom. So if you look right here, we can tell that nobody's really been in here much lately. The uh, reason I say that is because I've left a muffin and a crushed grapefruit soda with my business cards right there. Um, I left that about a month ago now. So nobody's touched it yet. Um, I'm going to go ahead and toss this muffin off to the side because it's obviously not, not real good to eat anymore. Um, do, do you know what would, do you have any uh, inclination as to why maybe this, nobody's here right now? 
there's been a lot more activity from, uh, from the workers around here more recently. So I, I think that could probably have, have part scare, in it. Scare people away. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of eyes around this location right now. So it's not really. It's getting dark and the temperatures already dropped to below freezing. John says that's gonna force most people indoors tonight. I feel like the majority of people will be headed towards the mission tonight since it's so cold. Yeah. Um, the mission is a really great resource, but some of our folk find it a bit higher barrier. And so... Is it Christian run? Or is it? It is. Um, so that does... That, that would be one of the barriers. Um, but they do amazing work. I meet up with Dom at the Huntington City Mission around 8 o'clock. The mission requires that people sign up to stay there. That means residents must actively look for work and they have to stay sober. But during the winter months, the mission has a white flag policy. That means any time the temperature drops below 40 degrees, a white flag goes up and they won't turn anyone away. Under normal circumstances, they'd pack people in, even letting people sleep on the floor when they run out of cots. But this year, the mission has had to radically change its policies. Taking in people off the streets who aren't registered at the mission could cause a COVID outbreak. So to keep people who are signed up there safe, the mission uses its chapel next door to provide temporary overnight beds for 20 extra people. First come, first serve. They call this program the cold weather shelter, despite the fact that it's open every night, regardless of the temperature. Dom and I are here an hour early, and there's already a line of people hoping for a spot. Uh, how y'all doing? Uh, yeah, so they have not opened up yet. My hands are ice cubes, so we nippy out here. If we want to, we can walk around the mission property and see if anybody's out as well. We walk around to the back of the chapel. Dom sees a guy without gloves and does his thing. You need some gloves, boss? Need some gloves? I got some, I just ain't wearing them. All righty, man. I appreciate you offer, though. Of course, Bobby. They strike up a conversation, and the man says his name is John. John's right. been at the mission for about eight months, but he was kicked out recently after a fight. Now, he's staying at the cold weather shelter. Once you're in, is it like in for the night or the- Yeah, yeah, you can't leave until, they let, they let you leave at five o'clock in the morning. So you get in there at 10, you leave at 5. Do you have to leave at 5, or is it? I mean, they kind of they they moosh you out, you know. Because, I mean, breakfast here is 7. So, you know. So it, it works out, though. It really does. Because I really didn't like staying inside the mission because you're in bunks and you're so close and proximate. And that's why they're putting people over there because of the virus. But John says he doesn't mind. He prefers the cots at the cold weather shelter to the bunk beds at the mission because he has more space. Looking through the chapel window, I see a worker arranging the cots in a five by four grid, each spaced out for social distancing. It's getting close to nine o'clock, the time when the cold weather shelter opens its doors. Dom's here to see if there are young people staying at the shelter. He talks to Yovita Rogers, who works there. She says she hasn't seen anyone who looks like they're under 25. Yovita says for the past few nights, only 10 or so people have been showing up to the shelter. Such a low number worries her because she knows if they're not here, they're out there, sleeping in the cold. I wish, I know there's a lot more out there on the street. I wish they would come here, but a lot uh, of them won't. It's the stigma, it's the stigma of the mission. Unfortunately, I, I try to build y'all up. Yovita understands that some people aren't crazy about the idea of going to the mission, but she says it's by far the best option for someone living on the streets. And that's what I tell everybody. The Harmony House and the mission are the best places in town. But if you don't want it, it ain't gonna be no good. You're wasting their time and everybody else's. If you're not gonna go to the job interviews, you're not gonna go do what they want you to do to help yourself, then how are you gonna do that? You're just going to be in the same spot. How long have you been around this area? I was raised here. 
I was raised in Wayne County. I went to prison in 2015. I got paroled to the mission in 2017. Like I said, I stayed there 18 months on parole. And they got me a place. Of course, when my son got killed, I relapsed. I went hard, about killed myself. Yovita says the mission saved her life, and she feels blessed to be able to work there. When they announced the cold weather shelter operation this year, she knew she wanted to help run it. And it's tough work. She sets up 20 beds, making sure they're all at least six feet apart. And then she helps people store their stuff and stays up all night to make sure people aren't congregating or coming and going as they please. Has this year been harder? Yeah, really harder. Especially now, since the lockdown, everything's locked down. And it makes it a lot harder because they don't have nowhere to go during the day. It's really hard on the street people. I mean, at least they got a warm bed and they got a cot. I bring food in here to them. I cook up home-cooked meals all the time. And my husband gets on to me, and I'm like, hey, you know, we were there. Don't forget, we were there. We know what it's like to go to sleep hungry. We know what it's like to go to sleep on an empty stomach. And it's not, it's not a good feeling at all. We've been listening to a story about how the pandemic is affecting people connected with the Huntington, West Virginia homeless shelter. But what about people who don't want to go to a shelter? Next, we'll hear from two people who've been living beneath a bridge in the state capital of Charleston. Again, here's Kyle Vass. Hey, Robbie. Can you hear me? It's Kyle from earlier. I met Robbie holding a sign at an underpass in Charleston. Robbie was busy asking people for money, but he invited me to come chat with him later where he sleeps, under a bridge on a dirt embankment about 30 feet away from the river. He offers me a seat on his mattress so I don't have to sit on the wet ground. How's it been today? Today has been a rough day, but I'm here and I'm blessed and tomorrow will be better. Can you describe what, like, where we're at right now? Under a bridge where I sleep with the floors mud, there's syringes all around. There's a lady I don't even know over there. Uh, it's uh, just, oh, there's water running down right next to us. There's human feces over in the corner. It's one of the most depressing sights you'll ever see in your life. What is it about, like, here... Um, like, have you, you tried a shelter and stuff like that? I would love to go into a shelter, but my wife don't want to go. She says she hates it there because every, the staff is so mean to everybody. So she refuses to go back. And it just makes it hard because you, there's no really place to clean yourself. There's no place to really shower or clean your clothes or anything like that. And it just makes everything so much harder. While we're talking, Robbie's wife Kelly comes back to the campsite. Both say they use drugs, so we won't use their last names to protect their privacy. Kelly explains her experience the last time she was in a shelter. All my stuff got stolen. Everything. And I had a driver's license and um, you know, I would have had to got it transferred anyway from Ohio to here, but still, you can't get in most buildings without a, a, a picture ID. Replacing an ID often requires a proof of address, and that's impossible when you don't have a home. Kelly adds she couldn't handle the environment at the shelter. It's a shelter over your head, but that's about it. It's very, you know, kids screaming, Parents hate their kids. The kids hate the parents. Just because everybody's in a bad way. Everybody's stressed out. Uh, you know they're going through a hard time, and it's just you got them all in a building now, and it's very stressful. She says the facilities are run down, and usually she and Robbie get separated. Doors don't even, you know, they just swing back and forth in the bathroom. Some of the showers don't even work. Uh, Just a lot of problems, you know. And like, here we are married. And more than likely, we couldn't even stay together because 
they don't have that many family rooms and that goes to people with kids first you know they get first priority so you know here we get to stay together you know it's that's important when you're married you know not to be separated what's the uh, what's the path towards i mean do you all see like a path towards getting a place of your own yeah. we for our first thing detox we got to get these drugs when you have drugs in your life it's a downward spiral nothing's gonna work out because you're always working to get well you know you do a shot well before you get that shot in you try your, your mind's working oh gosh I gotta get in, you know I'm gonna be sick you know I gotta hurry up and you know hold a sign or panhandle or you know do something you're always getting that next shot and it never ends it never ends it's so exhausting to be clear, the majority of people experiencing homelessness in the U.S., about two-thirds, do not suffer from a substance addiction. Kelly and Robbie say they do. They can't imagine finding a stable living situation while trying to battle a heroin addiction. Right now, their goal is to make just enough money each day to keep them both stable. One stamp, I don't know if you're familiar or not with drugs, but yeah. like one stamp is $20. That's a lot of money. But how much is that going to hold you for, like, a, is that a day? It just depends because one stamp could be really good because it don't have a bunch of um, all cut, you know, to make it bigger. So if it don't have a lot of cut, you know, and it's, it's really good, then it could last you a long time, you know, all day. But A long that, time would be all day. Oh, yeah, I think it would be a long time, don't you, Robbie, all day? Kelly and Robbie say their first step to getting off the street is quitting heroin, but it's a catch-22. They can't go through all the withdrawal symptoms while living under a bridge in freezing temperatures. Kelly adds that 20 years ago, she had a house and a great life. 20 years ago, I didn't know what an opiate was. I had back surgery. The doctor gave me fentanyl patches and suckers. That was just the tip of the iceberg. Long story short, I lost my insurance. The 15 patches, which is what you get a month, was $800. I couldn't afford that. That's And I would lay in bed thinking I was going to die, laying in a pool of sweat, freezing, sneezing, diarrhea, vomiting, uh, just bones just pulsating, just the worst case of the flu you've ever had, and it just gets worse and worse by the minute. Kelly and Robbie say they've tried shelters. They've tried local rehab facilities, but currently, they just don't see a way out. Every day of my life is suffering. The only joy I have is my wife, and it's eating us apart. It's destroying us. Kelly was my best friend, and now we spend most of our time arguing over who got more dope or who made more money. And it's just, I don't know, like, where do you go when you want help and there's no, you've tried everything and there's nothing left to do and you've lied so much and you've burned so many bridges and there's just nobody left to help you. What do you do? And you, I can't do it on my own. I cannot do it on my own. And there's nobody left to help me. Robbie adds that even if he can get off heroin, he worries about what he sees around him every day. I got a friend named Mikey. Uh, he hardly does any drugs. He's completely insane. He sees demons, and he just walks around here. Nobody will help him. The cops see him. Everybody sees him. They know that he's, he's got a severe mental illness, and they just let him be. Um, I walk a lot at nighttime because I can't sleep good. And um, there, you, you go up there to the transit mall and there's people just laying on the concrete, just laying on the concrete with no blankets and stuff. And it's like, how, how can this be happening? Like, I understand me, I'm a drug addict. I understand why I'm here. But what about these people who really had no choice in it? Like, how come there's no help for them? How come there's no help for any of us? Why? Why isn't there any help? 
Kelly says they have so many concerns every day just to survive that the worldwide pandemic is barely on their radar. COVID is like the, the last thing on my worry list. I feel like, it, you know, everything I've survived and endured, you know, what's that? What's that? Kelly says she's more worried about having enough to eat than getting COVID. She and Robbie rely on the food pantry and handouts for meals. Occasionally, they buy a cheap takeout meal and wear masks when it's required. But business restrictions aren't a big concern. You know, I go to Tudors. I don't worry about uh, how many people are allowed in Tudors or if anybody's going to get close to it. No, I'm worried about am I going to eat? You know, the virus ain't even on my list. Along with getting enough food, Kelly's worry list includes keeping her and Robbie's shelter in place, having a mattress to sleep on, and not freezing at night. The other day we come home, um, our, our big blanket, our main blanket that keeps us warm, gone, somebody stole it. Uh, so now we got like 13 little tiny blankets that... Um, that's, yeah, that sucks. We got it piled on us. And, and nobody wants to come close to us anyway. So it was no worries about social distancing because yeah, nobody gets close to us anyway. Nobody wants to come close to us anyway. That's a sobering line to hear. And it's a reminder of how the pandemic has taken these already existing divides, these disparities, and cranked them up even harder. The pandemic has pushed many people who were already living paycheck to paycheck out of work. Despite programs to provide rental and utility relief, some have lost their homes. At one point last summer, 60% of people in West Virginia said they were at risk of being homeless, according to a study by the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy. Homeless shelters have reported increases in the number of people asking for help. We're now going back to Huntington to hear from Mitch Webb the director of the Huntington City Mission. Us and them host Trey Kay spoke with Webb about what the mission's done to accommodate the additional people in need, while also trying to keep everyone safe. The pandemic requires some changes. More space inside to spread people out. Mitch wants to offer flexible support while still meeting public health requirements. So we have this uh, chapel. This looks like a church there on the corner of 11th uh, Street and 7th Avenue. And uh, the we took the whole sanctuary part of it, and we took everything out. There's no pews, no seats, no tables, nothing like that. And we put cots in there. You say that, that you try to get as many in as possible. I mean, how many people are coming into that, that sanctuary? I'm trying to think it was about uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we, were f- we finally reached capacity, and we were actually having to turn people away. In fact, one night we had 22 because uh, two people came in, they slept for a while, decided they wanted to get out and do their thing, and so they left and two people were waiting. They came in and got got a bunk. Unlike the mission itself, the overflow shelter or cold weather shelter isn't set up to house people for long periods of time. For example, there are no bathing facilities. But the city of Huntington does a good job coordinating its support programs to serve the homeless population. They know that they could go to Harmony House and get a shower there. And they're probably going down there anyway because they may have someone that's helping them try to get housed or try whatever it is that they're looking for working out there. Um, They can go to Valley Health for medical needs. They can go to Prestera for mental health needs. And so we've hired four staff to man that. We figure we'll have them for about six months. We're thinking about hiring a couple more so that we can uh, open up at maybe uh, six, maybe six o'clock or seven o'clock in the evening instead of nine, uh, where it's starting to get colder. But uh, right now we just don't have the manpower for it. Has COVID introduced challenges in trying to encourage people to come inside? I don't think COVID has been much of a challenge for the individuals that are unsheltered. 
as it is for us to try to serve them. Say more about that. What, what, what is the challenge for you who are serving them? Our crew that run the cold weather shelter, I mean, you talk about frontline workers. Uh, they're the front lines. So they're uh, susceptible not just to COVID, but uh, HIV and hepatitis and uh, just about anything else you can think of. So what do you do to keep them safe? Well, you just try to teach them, you know, some good uh, procedures. Uh, you make sure that they have a mask on, whether, not, whether anyone else has one on or not. At the cold weather shelter, do you have to turn people away? We do if we, do, if we have all the bunks full. Yeah. What do you, what do you tell them when, when you have to turn them away? We're, we, don't have any more, we don't have any more space. Uh, is, is there another place to direct them? No. No. Like uh, I told you uh, a week or so ago, we, had, we were full and two, guy, two people left in the middle of the night. There were two people out waiting. So uh, right now there's nowhere else to go. Are there people who are reluctant, who, who you are in contact with, who are reluctant to come to a place like yours? Yes, there is. Well, t- tell me about them. Why? why? Um, again, there's probably as many reasons as there are people like that. Probably some of them did have bad experiences. Uh, there is a, a woman in Huntington right now that uh, every time I see her, I talk to her and try to get her to come into the cold weather shelter, and she just won't do it. Have you had to make some changes over the past few years to make people who stay there feel more safe and, and more at home? Sure. Uh, and we're constantly evolving in that direction. Five years ago, we had a poster on the wall that had a, um, a list of all the, you know, here's what you don't do. And um, I mean, there's nothing on it was unreasonable, but it was, you know, right down to if you don't shower, you know, we're going to put you out. And so in an effort to better serve the population that we serve, uh, we have adjusted those things. And uh, now I think we have about five things that'll get you put out. If you're fighting, if you have drugs on the premises, you know, just some things like that. And now what we have is uh, expectations. Now, uh, Charlie, if you're going to stay here, now we expect you're going to shower and you're going to, you know, that kind of thing. But we have, and I'm real proud of our staff. Uh, has really evolved over the years to to get much better at that. Mitch says one of their biggest obstacles has nothing to do with staff or residents. It's that the current healthcare system just isn't set up for people with chronic, severe mental health issues. Now, I believe that the entire mental health system in this country is not working. It's broken. And if it's broken for the average person that, that has health insurance and has a family and has a roof over their head, if it's broken for them, when I think it is, then it's doubly broken for people who are experiencing homelessness, who have no support system, and who uh, walk around the street hearing voices in their head. And, uh, you know, that just doesn't appear that there is any help for those folks. You're also making me think about... I mean, right now, we are at a place where we're rolling out a vaccination for COVID-19. Do you feel that the people that you encounter, whether they're at the mission or at the cold weather shelter, are they interested in, in, in having the vaccination? I think a lot of them will be. We, the local health department is another one of those agencies that just collaborates really well with our community. Uh, the Cabell County Health Department has just done an excellent job. They give flu shots. I've been vaccinated for flu. Uh, our guests, they have opportunity to be vaccinated for that. And so I'm certain that when there is sufficient quantity of these vac- vaccines available, that they will offer them to the homeless community. And um, I think that the majority of, our, of the folks will. But uh, I think there's a few out there, again, especially those who are, uh, you know, just suffering from mental illness that, that will not. That was Mitch Webb, director of the Huntington City Mission, speaking with my colleague Trey Kay, host of Us and Them, a show that explores cultural divides here in Appalachia and across the country. You can find it online at wvpublic.org or wherever you find podcasts. 
Coming up after the break, West Virginia is a national leader in the vaccine rollout, but some of the state's poorest communities are at risk of losing out. We'll hear from an investigative reporter who's been looking into where the vaccine's available, where it's not, and what that reveals about health disparities across Appalachia. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. At first glance, West Virginia seems to be nailing the vaccine rollout. As of late January, nearly 10% of state residents have received at least one shot. Second in the nation after Alaska, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But not everyone across West Virginia has the same access to the vaccine. Reporter Lauren Peace has been investigating West Virginia's vaccine rollout for the online news site Mountain State Spotlight. Lauren, tell me about what's worked so far. Yeah, West Virginia has consistently been towards the top of the list in terms of uh, percentage of the population vaccinated, but also the amount of the supply that we're given that's being used. Um, So that's really good, right? Because we don't want to waste vaccines. And there are a few reasons I think we're leading the pack early on. A big one is the number of people we have in our state working in healthcare and living in nursing homes. But because those populations are fixed, you know, you can vaccinate everyone in a nursing home in a day. You can vaccinate everyone in a hospital um, in a day, all of those healthcare workers. Um, that made it really possible for us to get vaccines uh, into people's arms really quickly. Um, and then as we started moving forward and expanding the availability to the general public, um, to older older residents, um, we moved away from sort of the traditional approach or the standardized approach of sending vaccines through national pharmacies, really because we didn't have that option, <laughs> because we you know, don't have a Walgreens in every town in West Virginia. And so instead, we relied on smaller local pharmacies, on health departments, um, on clinics, um, and that allowed us to move vaccines quicker than, than other states were able to. Several weeks into this distribution effort, something changed. What happened? On December 30th at a press conference, um, Governor Jim Justice pivoted. He announced that months ahead of schedule, uh, we would move out of phase one distribution. And instead, uh, we would now make the vaccine available to West Virginians who are 80 or older. That was a positive thing for a lot of people, um, but it came with little warning for the folks back in the local counties who were charged with suddenly distributing the vaccine. But the the real problem was that the clinics condensed vaccinations into seven locations across the state. You know, we went from distributing vaccinations to every single county and it being relatively chaotic to distributing vaccinations to just seven counties around the state and telling residents hey, if you want access to the vaccines, we're doing them out of these centralized hubs and you can drive there. Well, in West Virginia, not everybody has access to transportation. Um, So we started to see inequity in distribution. What were some of the patterns you found? We ran a data analysis on this um, and we we basically mapped the sites of the vaccinations um, against percent of population living in poverty across all of the counties. And we found that of the 12 counties with the highest poverty levels, um, only one, Logan County, had a vaccination distribution center. And of the 46 vaccination distribution centers set up in the month of January, only two were in any of, of the 10 poorest counties. That also meant that some of the sickest populations were going without access to one of these vaccination clinics. Populations living with high rates of cardiac disease or um, chronic respiratory disease, these things that are, you know, that, that make patients incredibly vulnerable to COVID uh, and to death in, in the event that they contract the virus. 
A few weeks ago, uh, there was a hub in Greenbrier County, and that single hub was meant to serve residents of the surrounding nine counties. Um, well, I spoke to a nurse in McDowell County Health Department, just to put this in perspective, who said, you know, we had um, dozens of vaccines designated to us, um, sent to Greenbrier County at that hub. And of the more than 100 people on the health department list that I have, only three were able to make the trip. The other thing that struck me when I looked at this map is that a lot of these counties that have, you know, higher co-determinants of death and, and high poverty rates are also places where the rural infrastructure healthcare network there is challenged. You know, Mingo County doesn't have a vaccination site. And of course, it lost its hospital last year as well. What does this story tell us about rural health infrastructure in West Virginia writ large? People living in rural communities have really suffered for decades because of lack of uh, access to preventative services and sort of standard standard primary care that we know, um, you know, can be the difference between uh, the need for a hospital visit and the ability to, to live a, a totally healthy and normal life. Have you seen anything in your reporting that, that suggests directions to, to fix some of these problems? What are, what are some potential solutions? Um, well, so there is a lot of talk about eventually um, switching to mobile distribution clinics. So having vans drive around some of our more, more rural counties, uh, getting the vaccine to people, um, even at their homes, right? We have a lot of homebound uh, residents, too. A problem that has been raised um, is that the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored uh, in incredibly cold temperatures. And as soon as it leaves that you know, negative 70 degrees, I believe it is, you only have five days to get it into people's arms. So a lot of these more rural counties, especially the ones without hospitals, just don't have the ability to store the vaccine for large periods of time. Now, if you talk to providers in those rural counties, they'll say, well, we there isn't a need to store it for a long period of time because we get it and we put it into people's arms. There's there's enough demand. Are there any lessons being learned with this vaccine distribution that might be helpful to be applied to the broader challenges for providing health care for folks in rural counties? If nothing else, it's sort of it's it's forcing this light on on disparity, right? On on the differences in access that residents living in Morgantown have compared to residents living in you know, Oceana, Wyoming County have. Um, and because uh, the vaccination distribution effort is this, it's, it's a national effort. It's something that every state is having to do. It's certainly putting the topic of access on the minds and, and radar of, of powerful people. Hey, Lauren, uh, public health reporter for Mountain State Spotlight. Thank you for your time and for talking to us today about this story. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. That's Lauren Peace. She's a Report for America fellow and the public health reporter for Mountain State Spotlight, a nonprofit news organization. Her story about vaccine distribution in West Virginia, co-written with Ian Hodgson, was published on January 21st. Since then, the state has taken steps to expand its vaccine distribution, and this past week, it launched vaccine clinics in all 55 counties in West Virginia. There's still room for improvement. Things like economic stability, environment, and access still make a difference in who gets vaccinated, whether there's a vaccine clinic in the county or not. Here's an example. According to state data, black West Virginians have been vaccinated at only half the rate of white state residents. Clearly, there's still more work to be done. Even with ongoing distribution issues, the vaccine is providing a ray of hope that the pandemic will end. But more people seem likely to lose their homes in the months ahead, especially now that moratoriums on evictions are expiring. Let's listen to another segment from Us and Them. Reporter Kyle Vass met a man who was homeless, but who has since been offered temporary housing. Now he faces a new challenge, keeping the roof over his head. For the better part of a year, Tommy's been living on the streets. We're not using his last name because Tommy admits in the past he's used and sold drugs. Thanks to a housing program from the federal government and the United Way, he's been placed into an apartment. He has a house, for now. Tommy has three months where his rent and utilities are paid for. That means three months to rebuild his entire life and establish an income so he can take over on the rent. How did you come into getting this place? This come to United Way and the uh, 
I got assaulted in July out on the levee, and that's kind of bumped me up. It sucks on that aspect, but... Tommy was attacked while sleeping outside. It still haunts him and contributes to insomnia. He says with the roof over his head, sleep does come a little easier. But there are parts of Tommy's past that don't just go away because he has a place to sleep. The first thing Tommy sees every day when he steps outside is the house of a man he used to sell drugs for. Can you describe this neighborhood? Uh, honestly? Well, the first time I got out of the shelter, I, uh, you know, only thing I really ever have been good at is hustling. I mean, that's, now is that something to brag about? No, but, you know, I, I, made, I laid down in the bed with my demons long ago. Can I get away from that? No. The man that first put me on was living in that greenhouse down there on the left. I that mean put you on? He put me to work. I hustled for him and I stayed in that basement. The ironic thing is now my unit, I'm looking out my window and I can see that, that house. Yeah, you got these units. There's two, three, there's four of us here. Um, it's pretty much like I said, was that abandoned house there, that there's people that sit there. There's people come in our yard and take things. On the side of Tommy's building, there are four old school fuse boxes. Each one controls the electricity to a different part of the building. I don't see that. You can look in here. Yeah, that's apartment B. What are we looking at? There's no fuses. It's an empty box. Well, that has the power to the hallway I gotta go up. Three flights. So now we have no lights. Tommy says at night he has to walk up three winding flights of stairs totally in the dark. He thinks people living in the nearby abandoned house, or bando, are stealing the fuses for their lights. Is somebody stealing your fuses outside? Why? That goes back to the bandos, the... Oh, so that's... people need them. Hmm. Precisely. Tommy says he gets it. He doesn't blame people for taking them. In fact, he says it's ridiculous that a city with a homelessness problem would be filled with abandoned houses. The city's at a point where, you know, you've got elderly that have passed on, have moved. So you've got all this property that's empty. Taxes come. Yeah, boom, it turns into this. He points to the abandoned building next to his house. Now, yeah, you've got homeless that are trying to live in there. Well, instead of just throwing everybody in jail, being like, okay, well, you can swing a hammer, help us fix that building, and then you can help us fix other buildings, and there's your rent. Now, now you're giving them a job, you're giving them hope, you're giving them a chance. We head up the narrow staircase to Tommy's attic apartment. Yeah, it's a small unit. My lease isn't that long. I mean, this, to me, this is my stepping style. You know, the ultimate goal is get back moving. Uh, need to get my permit, see about them CDLs, and get a career back. Tommy's biggest obstacle right now is his license. He's having trouble finding a job that he doesn't have to drive to. I'm getting ticketed for not having an inspection sticker on a vehicle that wasn't even registered in the state yet. It's still registered in North Carolina. So, you know, I don't have money for that. I mean, that's over $500 just to the city, let alone each ticket is a $50 reinstatement fee at the DMV. He says in the old days, he'd just consider robbing someone to get the money. But now he wants to do things the legal way looking at like the legal options it's like they want you to get a job and you got to get a job to get the license but you can't get the job until you have the license so it's like a or i mean you got the buses but i mean the buses aren't free they can only get so many bus passes tommy has a bike but it's in rough shape so he can't rely on it to get around also the bike won't fit up the narrow stairway in his apartment so he keeps it by his front door he says that means one day it'll be gone you don't keep bikes out here long. I mean, it's funnier than, like, girlfriends in junior high. I mean, that, yeah. Why is that? Because there's people that'll take them. I mean, I think this is bike number eight. Since? Since January of last year, because it don't matter what chain you got on them, that there's 
fellas out here who've got the equipment. They want it, they're going to get it. Again, that was Kyle Vass reporting for the Us and Them podcast. Like our show, Us and Them is produced by West Virginia Public Broadcasting. They've got an upcoming show that digs more into the racial disparities that the pandemic has exposed and made worse. If you want to hear more of what they do, you can find Us and Them on most podcast platforms. You can also find it on our website, where you can subscribe, look through their past episodes, and learn more about the Us and Them team. Find it at wvpublic.org. Appalachia, and really America as a whole, already faced wicked challenges even before the pandemic. Segregated neighborhoods, a lack of affordable broadband, and a fraying healthcare system. Now the pandemic has made all of those problems worse. I don't think there's a silver lining here. Too many people have died and lost family and friends. Even with vaccines now going into people's arms, we still face many months of pain and struggle ahead. But it does seem like more people are seeing and acknowledging these problems the pandemic has exposed. And that gives me hope we'll be able to overcome them together. But to do that, it's really important that we're able to look at them squarely. And that's what we aim to keep doing here on Inside Appalachia. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Spencer Elliott, and Nathan L. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe and download all of our stories. Or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.